Go Ask Alice is a show intended for adult audiences because adults want to learn too. Sometimes we cover sensitive material, so please take care of yourselves and listener discretion is advised. Now on to the show. Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random Internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and my Animal Crossing town is mm, Chef's Kiss. With me Aww. is... <laughs> I'm Lindsay, and I once broke my ankle by sitting down. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> you did say that. <laughs> I have said that? I don't know. I, I, you may have. I don't know. It's a we're, traumatic we're... experience that she keeps reliving. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'm Sarah, and my life goal is to hug a wombat. I've now hugged a seal, so that life goal is ticked off. So my like, next life goal is I need to hug a wombat. <laughs> That's true chef's kiss right there. Thank you. This is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes every week. We all start on the same Wikipedia page, and during the week, we click around in procrastination mode using hyperlinks within the article until we find something we cannot stop reading. This week, we started on the Australian Prime Minister, just, you know, the general position of the page, and uh, where did everybody end up? Well... I ended up on the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah. Are you going to give us a personality test? No. Uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it, though. Okay. He's going he's gonna to ruin it. I'm keen to yeah, hear the science. Right. <laughs> um, I, I went on a wild ride. I sent some spoilers in the Discord. I went through a lot of trains. Lots of trains. Oh. <laughs> Lots yeah, of different types of trains. You went through some <laughs> fucked up trains, Sarah. There were a lot of trains. And then I ended up, so I went through, went again, wild ride through trains, through Nova Scotia, did a whole thing. Um, but I ended up on, uh, I ended up on funeral train, but then I ended up, my final topic page is something called the London Necropolis Company. Oh my oh. God. Oh, cool. it's, it's, it's excellent. Uh, just trigger warning. We will be talking about corpses. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I can't oh. wait. <laughs> Where did you end up, Lindsay? It is not this good, so we should make my segment small. Um, I ended up in The Garden of Cyrus, which is actually a book. Oh, okay. Oh, I have not heard of it. Me neither. Is it but, tangential um, to the Garden of Eden or not at all? Actually, a little bit, yes. Um, and it really touches on, in a very strange way, it's a little bit of a conspiracy theory work yes. from the 1600s. I don't want to take, I don't want to spoil okay, too okay. much, but it touches Ooh. on a lot of our previous topics, like conspiracy theories do. Like, you know how they connect everything. <laughs> it's just this all is of the dots. Yeah. <laughs> It's a go ask Alice conspiracy <laughs> about conspiracies. Like it's yeah. I am wow. so excited. Wow. Okay, okay, we've got some great things. So before we jump in though, we've got to do question of the week, which I believe this Ooh. is your question, Lindsay, because you're shopping for household appliances and wanted recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the question was what gadget, what home good or gadget can you not live without? So 
I'll go to Drew first to see if he's got any good recommendations for you. And it had to be PG. I... It had to be PG. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> had to be PG. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my favorite thing, and I think Lindsay already has one of these, I cannot live without my soda stream. Like, 100% cannot live without it. That was I drink mine. so much. You guys are oh. both going to say soda stream? <laughs> yeah. I cannot live without that. I love that thing. Oh, my God. It's so great. And, like, I used to drink a ton of, like, uh, you know, bottles of, of, of uh, seltzer. And I was just like, this sucks. Like, I hate having to throw these all out. Not throw them out, but recycle them. Um, I was like, this sucks. And then I got a soda stream. And I was like, now I don't have to recycle all this shit anymore. And it was yeah. great. I love my soda stream. Why mm. do you love it, Sarah? Excellent. I'm so excited that we've got Soda Stream. I wish we were big enough to have a sponsor from Soda Stream. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. Um, oh my gosh. So I'm obsessed with my Soda Stream because okay, first of all, the waste, because obviously I'm a little hippie and I want to save the planet. So that's very good. Just the simplicity of it though, like no electricity, no mega gadgets, just a valve and some pressure. Like I love that genius it's such a genius idea um i love that your guys reasons are so much more than like makes my water taste good it's like these are such good reasons <laughs> um but yeah i don't have another gadget to contribute that's my favorite what about you Lindsay? what did you discover from our listeners and what's your favorite so what I discovered from our listeners, I've got to say, they are not good salesmen because I don't Shit. really feel compelled to buy any of them. <laughs> um, every, our good, good friend, Michelle, or Gunshizer on Twitch. Um, by the way, Gunshizer means battle shits. Um, so appro- appropriately, her favorite gadget is her bidet so much that she talks about it all the fucking time so you've probably absolutely seen and heard her talk about her bidet in fact her bidet company liked her answer to our question on twitter even though she's oh like five times. yes, yes she, we're doing it oh my god she's obsessed I feel with like her bidet people, people who love bidets are a bit like people who do mma like you have to hear about it and it's yes. the greatest thing in the world and i don't disagree i wish australia had the days but it's not common i've never used you're saving waste that's yeah. true that's the way of the future um and then we also have a <laughs> submission from gene who says his air fryer and this is seconded Ooh. by another submission by daniel also the air fryer so air fryer is a big one okay. not really interested in getting an air fryer um and then squash plate <laughs> says uh a stand mixer but my favorite is my Roomba. Um, I have two oh. cats and I have all hardwood floors. I And my Roomba also has like a mop attachment so I can like wash the floor and vacuum the floor. I is fucking love my Roomba. the round robot thing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've never seen one of them up close in person doing its little work. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What should we start on? Hmm. Um, so I thought that the most interesting parts of mine had to do with death and with like big, uh, questions. Mm. Um, so I think that we should do a Drew sandwich because I think your and my topics might have a bit of overlap. Yeah. 
I'm cool with that. I think Drew okay. likes being in the sandwich. We are going to touch on so many past Go Ask Alice. Like, you're... Okay, everything's connected. So, The Garden of Cyrus is a book from 1658 by Sir Thomas Brown. But the other words for this book are the quincunial lozenge or the network of plantation of the ancients naturally, artificially, and mystically considered. (laughs) I can't even conceive what that means. That is just too much. So I felt that wiki... The wiki article was woefully sparse, so I actually went and read the book. Wow. Um, (laughs) Wow, the whole book. Yeah, it wasn't long. It really wasn't long. I will say that the wiki article, I was like, okay, anyone who's going to write a book that's this weird is probably weird himself so i was like let me give this guy sir thomas brown like let me just like quickly click on him to see if he was a freak and i'm gonna put this out front he was actually a very intelligent person he was kind of one of those people from from the 1600s who um i would call i would call him a scientist drew would not not sure what sarah would call him was he one of the dabblers in just a little bit dabbling and everything had the time and the money to yeah exactly i mean he was a sir like he had a title like sir thomas oh but i want to be a i want to be a rich old man that can just dabble yeah he (laughs) like he um he did like you know a lot of like alchemy and astronomy and like medicine and like was a very good writer so he was just kind of he was a renaissance man even though we're like out of the renaissance uh right now so there there is the temptation to be like if you read this on 4chan you would think this was fucking insane but this guy was like actually an intelligent person (laughs) Um, (laughs) but anyway the only interesting well, i shouldn't say the only my favorite interesting fact about his life and the only one that i wrote down was that in 1850 so a year before sarah's takes place i wonder if they're connected in 1850 his body was accidentally exhumed and his um <laughs> sarah's face right now um his coffin was accidentally broken open and his skull disappeared and then in some in some like church like records or something it was just like you know people of the town and then like skull 317 years old and people were like why the fuck is this here and so it ended up back with him that's the only real interesting thing i had about his life (laughs) that's nice yeah that ties in perfectly that sums up the issue we're gonna have is bodies everywhere by accident i okay so so wow okay already guys we are connecting go ask alice things that haven't even happened yet our brain waves (laughs) They're on the like, same wave. This this topic is our conspiracy. So, <laughs> okay, the the overview is what the hell is a Garden of Cyrus? Why is this even the title? The long one that I told you was a network of plantations of the ancients. I feel like the moment you start saying the ancients, we're like, yeah, we're like heavy into conspiracy theory territory, like you have. But um, the Garden of Cyrus is an uh, allusion to the hanging hanging gardens of babylon so one of the ancient oh, wonders yeah, yeah, yeah. of the ancient world so the idea 
is if okay imagine a, a six-sided die mm -hmm. uh you know the the five how it's like a dot in each corner and then one in the center mm -hmm. that's called a quincunk or a quincunk i don't know how to say mm -hmm. it but this guy <laughs> firmly believed that that was like the underlying structure of the universe and if you think about that like dot those four dots and one in the center um you can make an x connecting the dots so he thinks of the x also as a sacred shape and uh i guess if we're, you kind of like we're jumping from where like we're reaching oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. Four we're connections. Yep. i love it this is this, this is the precursory this is the prerequisite to, to you have to be on this page to get the rest <laughs> so we've got to go dice x what came after the x so well he okay after the x he was also kind of talking about um this idea i actually posted it also in the discord and it's like a twitter fact but a diamond as we think of a diamond is actually called a lozenge um so <laughs> the lozenge this kind of five dots and the x are all related they're all in his mind either the same shape or the same idea as is the number five all interconnected hmm. and this comes about kind of contextually uh the the time the the, the politics of the time were that uh Cromwell was kind of in power and there was this relaxation of the rules that were around what you could put into print and because these rules relaxed esoteric teachings and esoterica in general like skyrocketed so people were posting a lot of texts that were speculating on the nature of god and and nature itself without having to be directly christian so this kind of blossomed during this time and so he is one of those people who uh the the actual subgenre of esoterica is called hermeticism and hermeticism comes from the ideas of hermes trimagistus um all kind of related to ancient people who were really inspired by ancient greeks but this guy particularly who i'm talking about right now sir thomas brown was really into the ideas of what's called platonic realism and so I'm sorry to be boring with a little bit of philosophy, but the idea of platonic realism is this foundational idea that there are sacred geometries or shapes or patterns that exist underlying nature that have nothing to do with our perception of the world. So it is that like objectively outside of us, these shapes exist and we are just experiencing them. And the opposite of this idea, I would say, this, this is my thought, um, is the idea of existentialism, which we're actually much more familiar with in the modern age, which is that <laughs> the way I experience something is that it is that existence of that particular thing or things don't even exist until I experience them. This is kind of the opposite of that, is that things exist objectively outside of me. I encounter them. And in a way, it's very much um, kind of like a scientific approach. Um mm to say like this is the way that nature is and this is how i'm interacting with it but he kind of molds these things together to say if you can catch one of these patterns then you have an idea of intelligent design you have an idea of the way that god has made the world um we were yeah, going so well philosophically trying to be like <laughs> the universe is greater than myself it all exists without me 
and then we went god just and like then, well, jumped I mean, off that like cliff it, it kind <laughs> of makes sense to be like if you just suddenly like you know like when you've been made aware of something and then suddenly you see it everywhere i feel like people always talk about this with like cars like yeah. once you're looking to buy a certain car you just see that car on the road all the time what is it's, that called that's bader meinhof syndrome bader meinhof phenomenon bader meinhof phenomenon is it spelled the same way as your last name uh it's got two a's bader i didn't know it had a name yeah bader meinhof phenomenon thank you for teaching me that word drew like if i if if i were to just totally uh diagnose this person i would say like oh that's that's really what this is and, <laughs> and we're gonna have fun with it because i'm gonna talk about all of the ways that you would be a fool not to believe in intelligent design uh especially oh, after reading this book. <laughs> 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 um so the idea is that you know this is foundational evidence or unre unrefutable evidence that intelligent design exists there's a higher purpose and um it sits pretty squarely in that intersection between art and nature, um, which doesn't really mean much until I start talking about some examples. But that's that's the best way to kind of sum it up. If you if you remember nothing else from this episode, you, is that it did he like dabble in like crystal structures of like minerals and materials? Because can you imagine? So he's thinking like this lattice structure. Imagine if he looked at something under a microscope and was like, "This is it. That is the smoking gun." It's like um. That episode of Rick and Morty where they rock up on the planet and everything's on a cob. Do you guys remember that? They're like, we've got to get up. Everything's a cob. Yes, <laughs> I, think I, was, I know what you mean. Yeah. That's all I think of when I think of this guy. Everything's a diamond. Um, you, may as well have, you may as well have read the book. <laughs> that alternate title in australia everything's a diamond <laughs> a lozenge it's a lozenge. a lozenge that's it a lozenge um no you are um you are bang on he does look at crystals that is part of the argument you are you are right there so you know perfectly enough also there were five sections of this book and when i was reading kind of like an exposition or like an analysis of the book somebody had said that the third chapter is the longest because it can go in any direction relating to the other four so if you think of that that oh. shape that i had described the quincunk which is the four dots in the corner and the one dot in the middle the one that's on the face of the die the third chapter is the one that is in the middle and it can relate to any of the other four. It is the most sprawling and interconnected of the chapters. So on like a higher level, the structure of the book is also meant to reflect the subject material. It's a That's cool. It's cool as fuck. But what I would like to point out are a couple of things, which is we're going to get into, like I said, the number five is like absolutely quintessential. <laughs> that was as good as drew's uh great area, area. <laughs> 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 hey uh, um 
the the number five is really important. And so, so what I kept thinking about was that episode where I talked about number systems in different cultures and how the number five to us as a society takes its importance or maybe even inherits its importance from the fact that we have five digits on our fingers. You know, like we have a base 10 number system. The idea comes from like the number of fingers on our hands. And so it's kind of like, I would like to say that I think a lot of the historical significance surrounding the number five or maybe the foundations that it had kind of in culture going forward or it just, you know, the, yeah, it's significance. I think comes from the fact that we have five fingers on our hand and that's the base of our number system. But he would, Sir Thomas Brown would absolutely disagree with me. Um, But it is something to keep in the back of your mind. Like, what if we were born with four fingers? Would this whole story be any different? So anyway, the, the actual story, it was actually really written very much like a list. It was paragraphs of like, you know, each paragraph, each thing was like a thing that follows an X or the number five. And Sarah, you brought up a lattice. So when you put together a bunch of these lozenges, diamonds, sort of a thing, or side by side by side, a ton of these quincunks, the the um, dotted shapes, you do get a lattice structure. And so that is another fundamental piece of his argument is that lattices exist all over nature. And so the idea is quickly becoming <laughs> that this is a fundamental shape. And so what's interesting is that the the central part of his argument is that this is a holy shape or a holy pattern because if you plant your trees in this lattice shape or in a quincunk you have maximized the amount of sunlight and nutrients you can give your trees so the best way to plant an orchard in is in this pattern and because nature loves it so much it must mean that it's extremely important it must be a quality of our reality that we are living in something about this pattern uh, i so yeah uh i'm like yeah yeah that makes sense but also like i love that he's like been like orchards and lattices and god and i mean it makes sense yeah i mean so he goes can into... see why he got excited <laughs> <laughs> i mean he gets really into the weeds no pun intended in that case he goes really far into the weeds talking about ancient gardens in the first chapter so it's like the hanging gardens of babylon and like all these other kind of gardens and the way that they structure their trees the fact that they grow grapes on lattices and grapes are this like symbol of the fact that people have used lattices in the past um But what I actually found very impressive was that some of his sources, when he talks about ancient people, it's not just the Greeks and the Romans because this guy was English. Um, It's also like the ancient Indians. It's also like he brings up the Tao, which is like an ancient, like, I think it's Chinese, I want to say. I will take an apology corner if I got that wrong. Um, But he really brings in different elements of culture. He talks a lot about the Egyptians, so brings in some African culture. He really goes pretty worldly with it. But I just wanted to share with you some of my favorite examples of why this is a holy number. And uh, he talks like uh, really, really, really old uh, stained glass windows, for example, have a lattice Mm -hmm. structure, diamond structure. And the idea is that it's shaped like nets. 
and it's kind of like Jesus being partially seen and unseen. If you're standing behind a lattice, there's bits of you that are visible, bits of you that are invisible. So the lattice is connected to God kind of in that symbolic sort of way. One of my other favorites from the same chapter, this is only chapter two now, uh, is that ancient <laughs> beds were supported by lattice structures underneath the mattress. Um, a, <laughs> I, okay. I don't know. All right. I do sure. I feel like it's uh, just a very efficient way to build because you've got less points of failure. You activated Wait. my trap card. <laughs> Got yeah, on a secret level. <laughs> you did, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I was going to say, I was gonna wait until we were ragging on him pretty hard to bring it back to positivity. But what I was going to say is that I really can, as a physicist, sort of um sympathize because hmm. in 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 nature, for real, if you have an object, let's say you have a ball on a flat surface and you want to make sure that that ball does not roll. I mean, it wouldn't if it's on a flat surface, right? But you want to just make sure that this ball's not going anywhere. And so you want to make sure it's in equilibrium, let's say in this example, by applying force on either side. And so what you could do is put an opposing force on either side of the ball to try to hold it still. But if one of those forces is slightly off, you could be rolling forwards or backwards by accident. So the, the most efficient way to apply the least amount of force or the simplest configuration possible to hold something in equilibrium is actually a triangle. You mm. might think it's a square because you could do, you know, one on either side and then one on either side. But no, to hold something completely still, the, the best way to do it is to put it in the center of a triangle and apply a force from three different directions. And so when you think about the lozenge or the diamond, it's basically two triangles on top of each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe this is me going into the weeds, but I do think that kind of like from, because he goes far into architecture, for example, and that is quite literally a balancing of forces. Yeah. Well, I think what he's doing is not too dissimilar to like us physicists saying that there's, we have constants in the universe that that exists and that that's just the way the universe is and that they're mathematically important and fundamental and he's kind of doing that just for the number five and this lattice shape which is not yes. i mean when was this 1600 and something yeah yeah that's pretty pretty impressive i mean gotta give this guy a break we didn't know that galaxies existed or that you know <laughs> yeah, we so had atoms good. <laughs> Good, because he brings up that the head of Taurus in the third chapter is also uh, of, oh. of this shape. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we do we do cover some astronomy that that also happens. Um, God, the way crystals grow, the fact that chessboards have these these shapes on them, the the lozenges. Um. What? Oh my God! Sorry. Wow, this really sounds like his own manifesto. Of the lozenge, doesn't it? It really, it's a love letter to the lozenge, absolutely. Yeah. A love letter to the lozenge. I'm gonna, sorry, I've gotta write that down. <laughs> so good. Um, in 
chapter three, he goes pretty deep in a very impressive way into biology and the natural world. And he talks about the formations of patterns in leaves, but then also if you have the central stem, how many different pieces branching off of that stem might you have at once? Um, in the shapes of seeds, in the shapes of the stems themselves, actually, there are some types of plants you can identify mint, for example, because it has a square um, sort of stem. So if you have yeah. catnip or something like that, the stem, because catnip is a mint, believe it or not, um, the stem is a rhombus. And so he brings <laughs> up all of these different levels of plants as having this rhombus structure, this lozenge structure, um, whether it's in the formation of how the leaves themselves branch off or uh, the seeds themselves. And I don't know if people in 1658 didn't give a shit about plants because he kind of just goes off the rails for a minute and goes, this is a direct quote. That seeds of some plants are less than any animals seems of no clear decision. That the biggest of vegetables exceedeth the biggest of animals, except for the whale, contend with all oaks. <laughs> so what type of minute, vegetable like, is he eating? I, he's obsessed with vegetables in this book. I don't like I couldn't follow, but somehow vegetables are constantly divided into five. Do you think he's one of these people that, like, does the competitive vegetable growing? Like, you know, we get giant-ass pumpkin and giant <laughs> things because bigger than no other animal, sir. I am bigger well, than no, my vegetables. <laughs> well, he was like, I think he was, like, trying to be like, you might not care about plants, but oak trees are bigger than any animal I've ever seen, so they must be important. And then he's like, oh, except for whales. <laughs> 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 like i don't know if just back then people were like big equals important but then for some reason after that he's like by the way plants can smell just as bad as animals and then he says <laughs> like we're not talking about the numbers anymore i don't know what happened <laughs> of a deer like blah 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 like I'm like sir that's not this is not the time or the place <laughs> um, but I also thought it was very clever he brought up fish scales reptile scales the diamond on the back of a rattlesnake the front feathers of different types of birds it's everywhere this diamond shape and so by the time uh, we end chapter 3 he brings up the, the ancient e Egyptian hieroglyphic for world uh, actually has to do with a net or a net work. And he says it as two different words, a net work. But now we would just call this a network synonymous mm -hmm. with the world or a larger entity. And of course, a net is a combination of lozenges. It's this, I always forget the word, a quincunk. Um, the 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 lattice structure is a net and so everywhere that a net is used uh this this shape comes up and he also then by chapter four goes into real physics so in optics it, or even using your eye as an example a light ray comes in and it bends 
and it meets or you know it changes material that it's passing through and light waves bend you can think of refraction and reflection you can think of um, the way that if you stuck your hand in the pool it looks like your arm is bent but it's not actually bent but this bending just the fact that an angle exists <laughs> like lozenge like this is a diamond <laughs> light rays move in diamonds Oh Which would work for, for any angle. So I don't, I'm, I'm really, at this point, I'm like, you lost me, hon. But then he was talking about something to do with platonic. I, if anybody knows about this, I'm super interested. But apparently the way that the soul moves through worlds is in an X shape, according to Plato. I did not dig into that. Just took his word for it. But okay. we, the retina and the soul both seem to have this this shape to it and then finally in chapter five wouldn't be would not be a fundamental piece of esoterica unless we went into the cabal which is esoteric forms of the hebrew religion so the fifth letter of the hebrew alphabet is he and the quote that he uh uses here is to say if abraham had not had this letter added to his name he, re he remained fruitless. So he is the letter of creation. What I hate about this is that every single Hebrew letter is important. So this being the fifth really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but it is the, the letter of creation. And if you want to talk about a network or an underlying sort of structure, um, the, the letter meaning creation is a really great choice. Uh, I forgot to mention before one of in the sort of like let, let's call it the architecture chapter around chapter two he even brings up the fact that like ancient buildings like ancient Greek buildings ancient Roman buildings seem to have these lozenge patterns or lattice patterns on their floors and in their textiles but then says that kings in their crowns seem to the I guess orientation yeah. of jewels and things like that you know what i'm saying because you've got like an even number on either side and then one big diadem in the middle sort of a thing so he's like okay kings are doing it ancient people are doing it we all love the number five and then like if you're sitting in a court it makes sense to have the throne or the leader in the center as the sovereign sort of thing and then a nice even symmetry on either side we come back to the number five um he also briefly goes into some astrology with the fifth house being a house of oh. uh, fate. We're, we're, we're touching on everything. But what I wow. thought was really cool was... Very comprehensive. Okay, yeah, we've got, <laughs> very comprehensive. <laughs> but we've, we've got... Okay, this Go Ask Alice session where we talked about, okay, why is the number five special as a, you know other number systems could be equally as important. We talked about giant vegetables when we talked about your... Uh, <gasps> Carving, pumpkin yes. carving history. And what I thought was also really funny was that this book was wildly popular. And some of the people who read this book ages and hundreds of years later included Virginia Woolf, Samuel Coleridge, Herman Melville, E.M. Forrester. A accompanying book was quoted by Edgar Allan Poe. But my favorite person who loved this book, well, I maybe didn't love this book, but praised the writing style of this book, is Samuel Johnson. <laughs> and you guys are like, who the fuck is Samuel Johnson? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Number one, he is a meme that we use. Number two. Go on. <laughs> number two, he is one of the people who debunked the Cock Lane ghost. <laughs> wow, full circle. I am so glad we had video on for this recording because both Sarah and you just Drew just jumped in their seats and both jumped back. Wait. No way. No way. Yes. Yes. Oh. This man was there for a lot of shit. This man had a crazy life. Samuel Johnson had had a very interesting life that I did not know about, but. Uh, that was, I, okay, so I have to admit that this book came out as a pair and its accompanying book was inspired by the discovery of some Anglo-Saxons. So actually just from his point of view, only a couple hundred years old, but they discovered some urns. And so he wrote about those urns in one book basically the archaeological discovery of those urns. He wrote about them in one book and wrote about the Garden of Cyrus was the other book. And I felt that I was kind of beholden to talking about the Garden of Cyrus because it was the first one I found. But let me tell you that this other book is a work of art and it is very, very well done. Like I said, that Poe quoted it. Um, it's really beautiful. And it kind of waxes poetic about how ephemeral we are um how we're all going to die how it doesn't matter what your status is in life we're all going to meet the same end and i actually really enjoyed reading it and i have yet to finish reading it but i thought it'd be nice you know if other people are interested like come on the discord and chat about it because i i think that it's going to be um a, a very worthwhile read so this one was kind of the the less interesting of the two which is probably great because Sarah's going to talk all about death, so you don't need to hear it from me. But I did want to at <laughs> least leave you with two things. So it wouldn't be a Lindsay session if I didn't talk about the legacy. So what is the long-lasting legacy? But also I would like to leave you with a beautiful quote. So the legacy first I kind of did for Drew, because I feel like this is Drew's nerd spot, is that because of this man and because of this work, both books put together, about 700 and si 775 entries were put into the Oxford English Dictionary. A ton of words come from this man. Oh, oh, oh that's cool. <laughs> and uh, some of wow. those words, you definitely know. There's over 4,000 words where this is the first evidence that, of their use. Um, so it could be that the words are actually older. But some of those words are cylinder, ferocious, electricity, prostate, suicide, indigenous, coexistence computer ambidextrous and carnivorous just to name a few all come wow. from this guy and his work but that's that's very much the legacy of his work but i wanted to leave you with a quote actually from the other book that really uh i thought was beautiful and so the quote is again this is on the the book is literally called urn burial and so the quote from this book which goes very much into funerary customs. So teaser for Sarah's section. But man is a noble animal, splendid in ashes and pompous in the grave, solemnizing nativities and deaths with equal luster, 
nor omitting ceremonies of bravery in the infamy of its na of his nature. Life is a pure flame, and we live by an invisible sun within us. That is beautiful. Oh, wow, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> that is really yeah. cool. He had he was very eloquent in his writing. He was, and so what's funny is this guy, like Samuel Johnson, who I was saying was the the ghost debunker kind of a person. He was like, yeah, this guy got a lot of things sensationalized, but damn, he was a good writer. There's, like <laughs> everyone kind of agrees, like this guy was a good writer, but somebody. A critic in the 1920s was like, this man sees chessboards all the way up to the sky. Like, this <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be an insult for someone who's losing it. You're seeing chessboards all the way up to <laughs> the sky. <laughs> I'm writing it down. I'm making, I'm making ideas for stickers. Oh and my art. God. You're seeing chessboards all the way up to the sky. <laughs> So thank wow. you, thank you guys, um, for both listening so much and letting me go first. I know this was a bit of a listy one, uh, but I hope I've at no, least excited it. some some interest. Next time you see lattice structures in nature, um, honeycombs count. So next time you yeah. see some bees, you're like, I know what that's about. That's lattice. <laughs> I know what you're about, bee. <laughs> I see God. I see God in you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, wow that was amazing so yeah uh i ended up on the wiki page uh for myers-briggs type indicator or mbti for short which uh i think we're all a little familiar with because we have talked about myers-briggs personality types before i think we did right we talked yes, about i think we did we did because were you an intj no isfj you're close ISFJ. damn okay. damn but you know what? We'll get into that. We'll get into that later. Anyway. <laughs> so if you're not familiar with what the uh, the, the MBTI is, uh, I'm going to go back to my old ways and actually define my topic because it felt weird not defining it last time. So I'm just going to go back. So, <laughs> so basically, the Myers-Briggs type indicator is an introspective self-reporting questionnaire that helps to establish a person's psychological preferences and how they perceive the world and make decisions. So that's just kind of like a, a very wordy definition to say, like, this kind of tells you who you are. But so it's like a, that, like a vibe check. Yeah, exactly. It's a vibe check. I like that. So, so this test specifically attempts to define, like, assign people four categories. So there's introverted versus extroverted. There's sensing versus intuition thinking versus feeling and judging versus perceiving. So those are the, like those four categories, they come out as like the four letters that you have. So that's why you have things like INTJ or ESFP, mm -hmm. both of which are like a personality type based off of those four different categories. So <laughs> I'm going to come swinging right out of the gate here. The problem with this research or, or most of the research associated with, with the MBTI is that the validity of the actual Myers-Briggs typing has been uh, like all of the, the research that, that's into the validity of it has been produced by the Center for Applications of Psychological Type, which is an organization that is specifically run by the Myers-Briggs Foundation. So mm -hmm. I see a problem there. A little biased. And all of, the all of the papers supporting MBTI are published in the Center's own journal. So if that's this so does not immediately make you question this, uh -huh. <laughs> it should. Uh, so is it that there's no supporting documents and other peer-reviewed 
Oh, and first are of all, are they no. peer reviewed? They must be. Oh, uh, they're they're peer reviewed by that journal, which is run by the MBTI Publishing. Mm. Right, and that they make so money. Biased. They make money from this test, right? Yes, they do. And all of the funding, <laughs> all of the funding goes into these different studies that they produce. Mm -hmm. So if you don't see a problem with that. Maybe you should get your head checked because that looks like, uh, you know, conflict dodgy of interest science. or bias or dodgy science. Exactly. Yeah. So um, through the MBTI, sorry, though the MBTI resembles some of well-established psychological theories, um, it is criticized as pseudoscience and is widely in, and is not widely endorsed by the academic researchers in the field in the psychological field. So the basically basically what they what they say about it is it has poor validity. It has poor reliability. Uh, the measurement categories are not independent and it is not comprehensive. So there's a lot of different things that kind of go into this that, that kind of point that the MBTI is, is not very great. Um, and, you know, the, the, the four scales used in the MBTI do correlate to four of the big five personality traits, which is a much more commonly accepted framework. But it's, it's kind of really lacking in any sort of connection to real science. And that's that's kind of the, the whole point of this is the MBTI is, is not really a good science. It doesn't have real good science behind it. Yeah. So what I wanted to do first was get into the history of the MBTI because I feel like that's kind of important to understand where the MBTI came from. So um, basically, the original version of the MBTI was constructed by two Americans, Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter Isabel Briggs Myers. So it's a mother-daughter combo that make this that make the MBTI. Oh, yeah, right. That was on. I um, thought it was going to be two white men. Nope, it is two. It is two white women. Um, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. Not, it's uh, that, almost that, that, not better. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, Briggs began her research into personality in 1917. So a really long, pretty long time ago. Um, Wait, what? I thought this was yeah, modern. No, it started in 1917. Um, so basically what she saw, she looked at her son-in-law and was like, he's weird. And he's weird compared to the rest of the family. Why is he weird? And that was kind of the whole like point of her, her like looking into this was like, why the hell is my son-in-law so weird compared to all of his family members who are normal? So she, she embarked on a personal project, including reading a bunch of biographies uh, and then she developed the typology where, you know, she proposed, the, proposed these four different temperaments specifically. So it's just like, he's weird. That Wait, so by son-in-law, do you mean like who, who? The daughter's husband? Yes, the daughter's husband. What a fucking diss. Like, I'm going <laughs> to invent a branch of psychology, fund it myself just to figure out why your husband. Why you're weird? Yeah. It's weird, yeah. <gasps> oh, was that and that's the daughter, like the daughter Maya Briggs. I believe so. It it just said her future son-in-law and didn't say specifically who because she could have had wow. a few daughters, so I don't she, know. I wonder right. if she got a daughter in on it and was like, He's weird, I think he's weird, you wanna suss him out with me? And the daughter was like, Yeah. Wait, would it be funnier if it was the the daughter that's the wife of the guy or would it be funnier if it was just another sister who was another like, sister who's yeah, like yeah. savage <laughs> like i don't know which is worse like <laughs> <or> <laughs> bad. 
just it's like it's like you know you're like catching up with the girl and you're like oh how's your life i heard you got married how's your family and she's like well my mom and my sister started a branch of psychology because they hate my husband like <laughs> that's what oh they my looked God. like they look like haunted dolls yeah, yeah right? the mom they do daughter. they really do oh, you know what God. that means yeah. you know what that weird. means they're is the that, weird is ones. That this? Yes, that's what that means. Yes, <laughs> they're the weird ones. <laughs> they were the weird ones. Maybe he was normal. super normal. Maybe he was super normal, and they're like, "Why is he weird compared to us?" And the that's who knows? Mean. That's what that means. So anyway, getting back to this. <laughs> so the four temperaments they came up with were meditative or thoughtful, spontaneous, executive, or social, and. We'll get into a little bit what those mean, but um, basically, after the tr the English translation of Carl Jung's book, The Psychological Types, uh, was published in 1923, it was first published in German, actually, um, Briggs recognized that Jung's theory was similar to hers, but went far beyond her own. So uh, Briggs' four types were later identified as corresponding to what we know now as some of the MBTI types, where the introverted is the meditative, the um, extroverted prospectors are the spontaneous, the extroverted thinkers or judges are the executive, and the extroverted feelers and judges are the social. So oh. she kind of had, like, started to kind of build this even just from the, her weird son-in-law. So um, her first published, her, she produced two publications um, describing Jung's theory uh, in the journal The New Republic. In 1926, uh, her first publication was Meet Yourself Using the Personality Paint Box. And then <laughs> in That's 1928, so yeah, right? It's so cute. <laughs> I love that. And then in 1928, her, her next one, this is my favorite, is the title is Up From Barbarism. And that's it. <laughs> What's barbarism? Like barbarians. Oh. She's just saying oh. we're up from barbarians. That's like, nice. That could be anything. That, or that, that could mean anything. <laughs> like, that could be a cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> it really could. It could be anything. But that's what, that was her second what's article. What's it called? The um, paleo diet? Up from barbarianism? <laughs> there you go. Oh, uh, yeah. So they actually, um, from this, they studied Jung's theories a lot more. And Briggs and her daughter wanted to make something that could be used practically, use it, like applying Jung's theory practically. And I will note here that neither Myers nor Briggs had any formal education in psychology at all. No formal education in it. And both were self-taught in the field of psychometric testing. So I don't, I don't think like formal education is the be-all end-all. But I feel like when you're coming up with like theories that define people, I feel like you should have some kind of formal education in it. But that's just me. I don't know. I don't know. What do you two think? To me, this this smacks this smacks of of the zodiac. Like you know, the reason that people love horoscopes is because you're putting humans into categories. So okay, sure, I'm not an ENFJ, but I'm a Leo you know kind of a thing <laughs> and it's you know what i mean it's like it's just putting people in in categories and i what did i hit did i hit your trap you, card you hit it so perfectly you hit oh, it so perfectly <laughs> are you actually a leo too Lindsay? 
I am. So in my my we mind, this are. is why we get on so well because I'm a Taurus. <laughs> Wait, stop! My best friends are usually horned animals like Taurus. <laughs> Drew, when's your birthday? <laughs> when's my birthday? Yeah, August seventeenth. <gasps> I'm a Leo. Oh my god! You, yep. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. so much sense. Makes sense. Luna uh, is Luna's you're also born a the day after my brother, and you remind me so much of my brother in like the best way. <laughs> you guys, wait, hold on. You guys, we're like, you need a formal, you need a formal education in psychology, and then we're like, wait, it makes so Leo. much sense. Oh my god. <laughs> Like this is like this is like our script, and you're like, oh, but that's real. <laughs> Three oh dickhead God. scientists being like, mm-hmm. It makes yes, sense. It's always the Leos and the horned animals. <laughs> oh my God! It is though. It is. Is it? Is it really? Yeah. It is. No, but I. <sighs> what I was going to say was that I feel like it is. Um, very relatable and in some ways just like really central to human nature to we got to put things in categories we got to understand mm-hmm. the world around us we got to understand people so in that way it's, it feels very relatable but it depends how it's being marketed if you're saying that this is like a real tool of a real psychology that's one thing but if you're saying i don't know i looked at a lot of people and thought they had these things in common yeah well yeah. Lindsay, you you are so right. There's a psychological phenomenon literally named for the thing you're describing that Stop. I'm going to talk about later. There's a psychological phenomenon for that. So you're so you are you are so right. You've like jumped 10 paragraphs down. Not yes! 10, but like 5. Wait, but can okay. I hold on? Wait, hold on. That's the scoreboard for this episode is that this is now twice I have said something and you have come up with the psychological phenomenon describing that thing. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Ding, no scoreboard. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So, so here's actually where where the whole like testing and all of that came from. So Myers actually decided to work under a man named Edward N. Hay, who was the manager of a large Philadelphia bank. And this is where Myers actually learned rudimentary test construction, scoring, validation, and statistical methods. So this is kind of like she learned the rudimentary kind of entry level um, making tests kind of thing. And and so she applied that to how to like make a Myers-Briggs, you know, make the Myers-Briggs uh, like testing. I'm not explaining this correctly. Like the <laughs> she, testing mechanism? She, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She, she took the testing mechanisms and she, what she learned from this, this, like this Philadelphia bank and applied them to psychology. So it, this is kind of where it comes from. And uh, the, the Myers-Briggs uh, began creating their indicator during World War II believing that knowing one's personal preferences would help women entering the industry of workforce uh, sorry the industrial workforce to identify the sort of wartime jobs that would most that would be most comfortable and effective for them so that's wow. the whole point of this the myers briggs was was literally designed just for that for wow. women to help like to, to pick what job they wanted yes to pick what job they okay. wanted wow to see what would be most comfortable for them I didn't know it was that old, and I did not know that it was actually applied in in like a, a real workforce context. Yes, yeah, it, it actually is applied in our workforce currently, which is like really bad because it's terrible pseudoscience. But that's besides the point. So yeah, but this was like fully applied in World War II. Wow, 
Wow. Wow. So the, the Briggs-Myers Type Indicator Handbook was published in 1944 and changed its names to the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator that we know now in 1956. So the, the interesting part was Myers' work actually attracted the attention of Henry Chauncey, uh, the head of the Educational Testing Service, and with his support, the first MBTI manual was published in 1962. So this manual then caught the attention of Donald McKellen, uh, sorry, McKinnon, um, the head of the Institute of Personality and Social Research at UC Berkeley, Harold Grant, a professor at Michigan State and Auburn University, and it caught the attention of Mary McCullen from the University of Florida. So it caught all these three people's attention, and they all started to really build upon the, the MBTI and, and kind of not, not make it more substantiated, but kind of give it more backing because they had all these professors behind it. So the publication of the MBTI was transferred to the Consulting Psychologist Press, Psychologist, Psychologist Press, sorry, in 1975, and the Center for the Application of Psychological Types was founded as a research laboratory in the same year. And then after Myers' death in May 1980, uh, Mary McCullen updated the MBTI manual to the second edition, which was published in 1985, and the third edition came out in 1988. Sorry, 1998. My bad. Um, wow. So that was, that was a little bit of the history of the MBTI. And of course, there's much more modern usages of the MBTI. But I really kind of wanted to focus on a bit of the historical perspective where it came from. So now, now let's kind of get into the whole concepts of behind the MBTI and, and really sort of see where it came from. So I feel like that's also important before we can really start smashing this thing and debunking it. So the, the MBTI is based on the influential theory of the psychological types which was proposed by the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung that I mentioned in 1921. So he speculated that people experience the world using four principal psychological functions, the sensation, intuition, feeling, and thinking. So in addition to one of these four functions, in addition, sorry, one of these four functions is dominant for a person most of the time. So from this, the MBTI manual created the four categories and then these, you know, that, that we're familiar with, the, the four categories being, you know, introverted, extroversion, uh, sensing, intuition, thinking, feeling, judging, perceiving. So each person is said to have one preferred quality for each of the categories, which has produced the 16 uni unique types, you know, the ISFJs and the ENTPs and all that. So there's 16 of them, and, and that's where these come from is these four different, you know, the, the four categories. So the MBTI was uh, constructed for normal populations, and normal here means like not mentally ill, kind of just a normie population, I should say, almost. So not like neurodivergent. <laughs> yeah, not neurodivergent. It was meant for normal populations. Good. But it does. Let me know when they find them. <laughs> find the one for not for neurodivergent. I was gonna be like, I do not qualify. Yeah, I don't think any of us do. I, was gonna say, I, don't, I don't think anyone does. Yeah, you're right. No, I don't think there is such thing as a normal at all. Like, no, yeah, like for real. Okay, who yeah. is normal? Are there people who yeah. are not neurodivergent? I guess so. <laughs> I would love I don't to know. know what do they, what is life like if you are not neurodivergent and you're not mentally ill? Because I have never lived that life. <laughs> and I yeah, would love right? to know, like, what does it yeah, feel like, like to just be like, I'm alive. Da-da-da. Da-da-da. <laughs> Who knows? 
<laughs> Who knows? <laughs> oh my god! That. I can't. But, I can't. Well, the the thing that this emphasized was it actually kind of put a value on naturally occurring differences within a population. So it was mm. it wasn't just saying these are normal people. It was saying, well, there's look at all this normal variation that occurs within a population. So it was kind of. It was kind of looking at that variation. It wasn't. It wasn't saying that like, oh, this is like a normal population. It was. It was. It was looking at variation specifically. So that's. I mean, I that's kind of cool to me. I guess. It, cool. Cool. Looking at this thing that's complete pseudoscience. I'm gonna say it again. <laughs> <laughs> so what's fundamental to the MBTI is the theory of psychological types, and. Basically, this proposes the existence of two dichotom dichotomous pairs of cognitive functions, the rational judging functions, thinking and feeling, and the irrational perceiving functions, sensation and intuition. So Jung believed that for every person, each of these functions is expressed primarily, in, primarily either in an introverted or extroverted form. That's where the I and the E come from, of course. And uh, Briggs and Myers developed uh, their own theory of psychological types, which the MBTI is based off of. However, the MBTI has been called has been called a moderately successful quantification of Jung's original principles. A moderately successful. <laughs> so, even even back then, even trying to complement it, it's moderately successful. Wow. So, uh, it, so what what has to be noted here that I I feel like it has to be noted is that both models remain hypothetical, with no controlled scientific studies supporting either Jung's original concept of types or Myers Briggs version. So there's there's no there's no scientific back scientific Jesus no scientific backing <laughs> <laughs> behind these that it's it's there's nothing so that's why I really want to call this pseudoscience mm. and um, again I'm going to say that so <laughs> okay. so first we must talk about the validity of it so the validity of this test when it comes to the MBTI as a psychometric instrument which has been subject to a lot of criticism throughout its time. So it has been established that between a third and a half of the publications from MBTI, about MBTI, I should say, have been produced for the special conferences of the Center for Application of Psychological Typing. So that's the, you know, which provides the training in the MBTI and is funded solely by the MBTI sales. So if you don't see that as, a pre as another big problem, it's, it's just the, the whole funding and the whole... Uh, like bias and and uh, conflict of interest that just keeps on popping up here because there's just no scientific papers that aren't published by these by this group, and you know that's that's of course a problem. But I mean, this, so this has existed for like over a hundred years, and nobody else wrote a paper to talk about it. A 1996 review <laughs> concluded. <gasps> that it is clear that the efforts to detect simplistic linkages between types of preferences and managerial effectiveness have been disappointing. Indeed, given the mixed quality of research and the inconsistent findings, no definitive conclusion regarding the relationships can be drawn. So that's like, you couldn't get more clear than that. <laughs> yeah, it don't work. It don't work. <laughs> yeah, that's this pretty is, black this, and white. This is my favorite part. So independent sources have called this test pretty much meaningless. One of the worst personality tests in existence. The fad that won't die. <laughs> Do you think you'll get replaced with like Hogwarts houses? Pro Honestly, <laughs> it might. That's probably where we're going. Um, 
So a psychometric specialist, Robert Hogan, wrote that the personality psych sorry, the most excuse me, most personality psychologists regard the MBTI as little more than an elaborate fortune cookie. So there you go. That's what Ooh. people feel about this test. That's, <laughs> that's an insult. Scathing. Yeah, it's this test has been described as one of the many self-discovery fads and has been likened to horoscopes as they both rely on the Barnum effect. Flattery and confirmation bias. So Barnum oh. effect, which is what you were talking about, which is super cool. The Barnum effect basically means that people give higher weight to descriptions of their personality if it feels tailored to them. So if you have things that feel tailored to you, like, oh, were you born on this day? And then like this thing about like, does, is, is this, you know, does this describe you well? Because it feels tailored to you, you add more weight to it and, and feel better about it. So that's, that's the Barnum effect, which is super cool and is a, is a great psychological effect. But, you know, it, that's what makes these, you know, very vague and widely applicable things so desirable is that, you know, we're putting weight, so much weight to it. So that's, that's uh, the, the effect that I was talking about before. Yeah. So that's that that's super sense. cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like super yeah. nuts. I feel like when you throw in quantitative bits, whether or not they're related, yeah. whether or not they're helpful, it it also makes it a little bit more believable. Like if I say, "Oh, I I I, I walked there really quickly," that's different than saying I walked there in five seconds. And both of them are true. But if I tell you, like you know, if I give the the appearance that I measured a quantity. Like it yeah. just it takes on like a different level of validity and meaning, I think. And so by saying like you're stubborn, that's one thing. But saying you were stubborn because you were born on August 17th at five o'clock in the morning, like it's not related, but like it sounds like I'm putting like quantitative reasoning on my answer. Well, there's something I talk about my I talk to my dad about this a ton. I don't know why, but um we talk about the um the lab coat effect where if you put someone in a lab coat and they talk to you, you're way more willing to believe what they're telling you because they're in a lab coat. And it makes, you know, it adds like a level of like officiality Authority. to them. This is so. a great time to talk about our Patreon tiers. <gasps> <laughs> Do you want a lab coat to talk to people and make them think you're important? We have just the thing for you. <laughs> Subscribe at Daddy Drew level and you get a free lab coat with go ask alice on it <laughs> wow back to the show, back to the show. <laughs> <laughs> wow holy crap that was a great great little segue <laughs> thank you <laughs> back to what i was saying so when it comes to dichotomies um, there's very little evidence uh, for specific dichotomies that are used in the MBTI. So statistically, we're going to talk about this statistically, which I, I really like. So scores of the MBTI scale should show a bimodal distribution, aka having two different peaks, with most people scoring near the end of those scales, therefore dividing them between, say, introverted and extroverted. Okay. However, most of these studies found a normal, a, a similar to normal distribution of most people with most of them falling in the middle of those two dichotomies. So that just like in and of itself proves that there can't be a dichotomy because you have a basically a normal distribution where you have a the, the standard bell curve as, as some would call it, 
right in the center between the two dichotomies, you can't have dichotomies then because there's, there's too much in between. So that's just inherent statistical methods that, that kind of prove that these dichotomies don't exist. That's very And then, which I, I was just, I love oh. that part of the article. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. Sarah's showing us her results. She's an ENTJ, meaning You're the You're an ENTJ? Wow, that's like surprising. This is fake. This is fake. We're talking about this is fake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very annoyed. I'm like, reel it in. Reel it in, guys. We need to send a consistent message. Reel it in. <laughs> <laughs> Drew and I are like, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird. Oh, yeah. I'm oh, getting sucked in, too. I'm like, this is really interesting. That's the, pr that's the problem. It's so interesting that it's hard it to like, interesting. be like, this is shit. This is garbage. But it's shit and it's garbage. So would you recommend people doing these for fun or to get to know themselves drew are you currently like nah so my thinking is to to get to know yourself it doesn't like this is a f kind of a fad it's kind of but it doesn't it doesn't hurt anyone to to identify as these things it's, you know like a horoscope doesn't hurt anyone i don't give a shit if you like horoscopes like all right that's, that's cool it's you so at the end of the day, it doesn't like if unless you're like making business decisions literally based off of this shit, like then then that's a problem. <laughs> but I will say it is definitely fun to have a cute little description of your personality type based on a few categories. It's really cute. It's great. It's it's like, oh, I'm these four letters. Do you put it do, in your Tinder profile? Of course I do. Because I'm a fucking asshole. That's really no. <laughs> Asshole. And this is a good reminder that if anyone wants to apply to date Drew, Lindsay and I will screen you. We still have open submissions. We are vetting. We're yeah, very approachable. Come join the Discord. Mm -hmm. Come join. Yes, come join the Discord. <laughs> Discord. And you can talk directly to me. You can figure out how much of an I asshole. No, 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 no. Sarah and I are going to moderate those interactions. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, we're not heathens. We're not just going to let you converse with ladies unsupervised. <laughs> Unchaperoned. <laughs> Unchaperoned. <laughs> Drew, I thought before you were going to tell us your bit, I thought I knew. Like, I thought I knew where it was going. I thought I knew what it was going to be like. And I was so wrong like that was like drew texted us ahead of time and was like i'm gonna take a deep dive into something you already know and i was like i'm pretty smart so i bet i do know already and i did not know <laughs> <laughs> i was that was like I had no idea it was so old. I had no idea it was so widely applied. I had no idea why it was so wrong. I just thought that you know people hate emotions, so they're like, oh, I don't want to do this oh, emotion work, yeah. test. <laughs> but like that, like thank you. That was that was a fascinating deep dive and really well motivated. I feel like I genuinely came out a better person. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the Myers-Briggs. I'm a better person yeah, now. Now I'm more curmudgeon -y. Now I'm less fun <laughs> because of this. <laughs> Thanks for reading my life. You're welcome. <laughs> Let's hear about corpses on trains. Oh, yeah. Yes. I don't know how to segue from personality types to we uh, with a song the necropolis we'd be like going off the rails on a corpsey train do 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 
Exactly. Okay, here we go. Are you guys ready to put all our personality differences and types aside and yes. jump into the London Necropolis Company? Fuck yeah. yeah. Okay. Already heavily alluded to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a quote. So I read some, obviously, the Wikipedia page, because that's our job to jump down the Wikipedia article. But I went on a deep dive outside of Wikipedia to, like, some other peer-reviewed sources, because science. Um, and I found this excellent article by Dr. Uh, Rosalind Welduck, who wrote about um, about this whole issue we're going to cover. And the topic of it was called Death, Corruption, and Sanitation, <gasps> colon, uh, colon. London's graveyards in the 19th century. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the quote from Dr. Walduck, walking around modern day London, it might be hard to believe that the remains of hundreds of thousands of Londoners lie beneath our feet. The city once contained hundreds of graveyards, crypts, and they were often overflowing with the remains of London's dead. Yeah. And that's oh. where we're going to begin. Whoa. So I'm going to do a Drew and I'm going to define the topic. And so a a necropolis is a large designated cemetery with elaborate tomb monuments. So basically a necropolis is a cemetery or a dedicated burial ground. Um, Sounds like a lot of mausoleums, um, like similar to a mausoleum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it it can include anything from like full on mausoleums and tombs and even like entombment. So not buried in the ground, but buried in walls. Um, but basically, a very large area. So not like um traditional churches in England. Um, because of the stronghold of Christianity, which we'll get to, they used to have local church graveyards. So if you were a member of a parish, you would get buried buried in your parish. That did not work very well when we were running out of running out of places. So mm. this whole company, the London Necropolis, uh, the London <laughs> Necropolis, London Necropolis <laughs> Company, they intended to establish a single cemetery that was large enough to accommodate all all of London's future burials, all of London's future burials for at least the next 300 years. Wow. So that's that's impressive. Wow, that's phenomenal. It's huge. It's like a big thing. And so the company's founders recognized that with the recently invented technology of railway trains, uh, it was really easy to be able to move things to and from, and those things included bodies. So all of a sudden we have this ability to move bodies away from populated areas and this was going to be their cash cow this is going to be their big idea um and so you're probably you're probably not wondering but our listeners might be wondering why did we need to move the bodies away from the big cities question mark turns out london had a body problem uh and we needed to solve that (laughs) So, (laughs) so as i mentioned before so since um most of london uh, most people who were living in London were largely of Christianity faith, um, and this had been been the case since about the seventh century. The city's dead had been buried uh, in and around local churches, local parishes. So you know, with you go to a church with your family, 
that's where you get buried. It wasn't like you could, you, it's not like you could go shopping for a graveyard. It's just like, that's where you went um, if you could afford it. And so there was a very, very limited number of spaces for burials. And most of the oldest graves were actually regularly exhumed to free up space for new burials. Oh my god. This is kind of for for a good few hundred years. It was basically plant your dead, put them in the ground, they sit there for, you know, near near a a, a century. We need to make more space. We dig up that and the broken wood, the the remaining bones, we stick the bones in the charnel houses, we repurpose the wood and we just keep burying and away we go. So it was kind of working. Uh, and it was good for a moment in time, but all of a sudden, uh, like it was becoming completely overwhelmed with this turnover. There, there wasn't enough time to turn over bodies naturally decomposing to get to the state of having remnants of bones yeah. to then move them. It just was not a thing. And so by the 17th century, the city was running seriously, seriously short of burial space. Um, and so to put it into to perspective so in the first half of the 19th century the population of london more than doubled we chatted about this a little bit in one of my uh, previous topics with the rabbit births um and just how like population basically just exploded exponentially and so london went from little under a million people in the year 1801 to almost two and a half million by the year 1851 so we have more than doubled the population. At this time, there was a lot of um, early death. So lots of, sadly, most, well, a large majority of, of children under a certain age. It was unlikely for all of your children to make it up to adulthood. Even in adulthood, there was lots of disease and, and problems that meant that you most likely weren't going to live for the you know, the at least 80 years that we kind of expect now. And so mm -hmm. there was a big problem, got a lot of bodies. And so the difficulty was that they literally could not dig in any site without disturbing existing graves. And so it led to this problem of in graveyards, they would often just stack bodies on top of each other in a grave. So if you think of it, um, kind of going down vertically you, you can think of the idea of six feet under if you're going to bury someone you need them to be at least a certain amount under the ground which you would hope so because we get issues that are going to be mentioned later all of a sudden we couldn't we couldn't accommodate everybody being six feet under or whatever amount of footage was ideal back in the time and it was just coffin on coffin on coffin with very little space in between, if at all. And you can imagine this is a big problem. <laughs> and so yeah. in, in the more crowded areas, uh, even the relatively fresh graves, so from literally only decades ago, had to be exhumed to free up space for new burials. And it was just uh, no time a to nightmare. No yeah. time to decompose. No time for the wood, for the coffins to even break down as well so you know in some cases there were just massive pits dug on existing burial grounds which were unearthing the previous burials um and kind of cramming the fresh corpses 
down into the available space you gotta imagine uh, that how desperate they were like yeah. i mean that sounds yeah. massively sacrilegious but it's like yeah you know we gotta like we need dirt yeah. we've got dead bodies we gotta <laughs> we gotta yeah. like it's a problem <laughs> and so basically there's a lot of excess stuff and I wanted to ask you, so they're exhuming things constantly to try to squish more things down in the ground. What do you think happened to all the spare bones, bits and pieces, leftover bits of coffins? What do you think was being happened with them as we were trying to turn them over? What year? Drew's face is like, <laughs> uh, think 18, 1801 to 1850 time scales. I'm going to guess it was sold as mummy powder not not far off they didn't i hope they didn't snort it uh <laughs> it was sold as something useful though so it was sold on i don't know if it'd be a black market but it'd probably be a gray market <laughs> at this point <laughs> uh, or, so it turns no. out they just sold the, mat- the bones they sold everything so like you could buy secondhand coffins so coffins that had been lightly used oh my god <laughs> but was still good to go you could stick another body in them put it back in the ground you could buy that on the drew's drew the shaking market. drew shaking his head and you know why it's not because he morally disagrees it's because that's a green market sarah that's a green market exactly <laughs> Exactly. The moment it's reused, this is a Craigslist. It's a green example. market. These are, <gasps> are right. Craigslist coffins. It's modern day Craigslist. Basically, so like secondhand coffins, get your coffins here. So there was also leftover coffins that were not lightly used, were pretty used. Um and so a lot of that wood, because again, we're in England, it is super cold, and we need to keep people warm, otherwise people die. So they would burn all of the leftover coffin wood, often uh, just as household fuel, for being able Drew's to keep their heating. I was, I was going to say burn it! I was going to say burn them! Yeah, I was right! Burn I was yeah. going to say burn it! Yeah. But did you expect them to burn it? In their house, I was thinking like outside, sure, burn it outside. Okay, yeah, yeah, These a little bit. Are yeah. Like dragging in their wood planks from manky old coffins and sticking it in their household fire. That's fucking nasty. It is nasty, Dude, and it I gets lo- worse. I love how like at the end of mine was like, here's some nice urns, and we're just gonna <laughs> like, there's like four of them, and we're just gonna think about how everyone's gonna die regardless of status and. You know, we're all little suns and happy trees. And you're like, we stacked bodies and then we burned the <laughs> burned heavily it. used shit in our house. It's like the total unromantic <laughs> kind of like, this is utilitarian death right now. Like, we gotta go. Yeah. No romance involved. Um, no romance. And so the final thing that was being dug up and exhumed were obviously leftover bones. Um from corpses, not not mainly not recent these ones, but from literally hundreds of years of burials. There's lots of bones left over. 
Uh, and so a lot of the exhumed bones were shipped in bulk to the north of England to be sold as fertilizer to be used in the agricultural grounds. I mean, I don't know if that's bad for you. Oh, well, it's it's a bit mad cow. Yeah. Well, mad cow's based off of tissue. It's not. It's not bones. Bones is just calcium. That's true. That's true. It just feels a bit gross if you're eating a carrot that grew in bone fertilizer. I mean, yeah. but we do use other animal bones for fertilizer. Do we really? Yeah. Blood and bone. Yeah. Didn't know that. I guess, I, again, it's very reuse, reduce, recycle. I like Otherwise it. we'll be drowning in body. Like, you have to or else this <laughs> You have happens. to do something. Yeah. I'm curious, yeah. Sarah, are you going to talk at all about the Enon Chapel? No, I'm not. Do you want to pop in a little fun fact? Yes. So yeah. the the Enon Chapel I happened across because of a very chilling illustration. Uh, and I will put that in the spoilers channel right now. But what I love is it's a church, uh, just a popping happening church with a dance going on. And it's a cutaway, and underneath you see piles of corpses and bones, and it's just like the perfect little illustration of life and death happening simultaneously. Oh, and I love it. The reason that I came across this, or even the reason that this exists, is because it was one of the worst examples of what Sarah just described, and it is one of those things that almost single-handedly made people come up with a sewer system. <laughs> and like (laughs) sanitation laws and so i just wanted to read just a couple quotes so the remains of 10 or twelve thousand bodies were stuffed underneath this chapel a couple thousand of them over the space of 20 years there was one witness attested to at least 20 internments a week and others believed that the vault housed an open sewer carrying the bodies into the thames it was said that worshippers breathed in noxious fumes of rotting flesh from the burial down below for years before the horde of bodies was discovered. One witness attested to those praying in the church regularly experiencing fainting and sickness due to the fumes. Yeah. Because so- <laughs> body toxins are awful. They're bad for you. They are very bad for you. <laughs> in April... <laughs> In April 1842, some members of a select committee visited the chapel. They reported that they were prevented from going down into the vault of the building, but one of them saying, I thought through the crevices I could perceive bones through the planks of wood on the floor. Uh, So in, (laughs) in this particular example, there was just a lot of toxic seepage happening both into the Thames and like, you know, through the air up into the church. Um, and it seems like they were not just desperate, but it looks like uh, putting this many bodies in such an area was not really encouraged. And so it was also kind of a secret because I don't know if this was also part of your article, Sarah, but like, I believe that the church was paid. People would pay like 
you know, here, I'm desperate. My loved one died. I'm going to mm-hmm. pay you to inter their body. And so the church is collecting money, but has nowhere to put it. So they're just putting them all in the basement, like 20 a week. <laughs> oh, my God. I, it is it is bad behavior. I can, I think I'm going to one-up that cemetery Go. with one called Spa Fields. Okay. I'll get to it in a bit because it was just as, just as shit. Um. But before we get there, so exactly what you said. So we've got literal toxic gases and juices and gross stuff like seeping down into the Thames, seeping into the water system. And so it was a super unhygienic place. So decaying corpses contaminated the water supply and the city suffered regular epidemics of cholera, smallpox, measles and typhoid um, and was consistently hit with disease and illness. Like just... Oh, you can just imagine the amount of toxins that are just everywhere. Which is going to make it worse, see. right? Because then it's you're going to make it worse. People are going to die. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it got it got worse in 1848 to 1849 because there was a massive cholera epidemic which killed 14,000 people in one year. Uh, in London and so it overwhelmed the burial system completely and at that time bodies were left in stacks awaiting burial near churches and in graveyards just it's like that Monty Python sketch of bring out your dead bring out your dead (laughs) bring out your dead bring out your Uh dead so big issue and Thankfully, someone was like, we should probably look into why. Like, maybe we should have a commission. Um, So a royal commission was established in 1842, and they found that London's burial grounds had become so overcrowded that it was physically impossible to dig a new grave without cutting through an existing one in any of the open space in London. Jeez! Wow. The commission heard... That one cemetery, Spa Fields in Clankenwell, uh, was designed to hold about a thousand bodies. Uh, when they did their survey, they estimated that it contained eighty thousand graves. You stop! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I'm fucking speechless. Yeah. Yeah, from hundreds of years, but 80,000 in a spot that was meant to hold a 1,000 graves maximum. You know what that means? 80, okay, let's, let's visualize this. I'm sorry. But like where you were talking about, let's say a 1,000 graves is the maximum, and you were talking about stacking people. That means that yeah, you yeah. need to make stacks of 80 people. Oh, <laughs> my <area>. God. <laughs> <laughs> And how many feet deep is that? That is going to be like hundreds of feet deep to try fit. It's insane. Like it really is. Uh, 480 480 feet. Jeez. If you buried buried them six feet under each other, that's 480 feet. (laughs) And they definitely were not. They definitely were not. (laughs) Yeah. So big problem and so they put they put a basically a ban so that that ban that i mentioned um in 1852 that basically 
crisis graveyard for clothes you cannot bury your dead here anymore that oh my god we haven't even gotten to the train we haven't got to the train we're getting there though so (laughs) yeah so don't worry the solution so our solution comes from two very savvy businessmen richard uh buran and richard spire uh, who had a fantastic idea, a great idea, in fact. They were going to buy a giant block of land 37 kilometers away from London, so way away from London, like so far away that when London expands in the next 100, 100 or so years, it won't even touch them, won't get there, so they thought, won't get there. Uh, and, you know, with these new laws, it would allow for them to have just a massive burial outside the city. Uh, and of course, moving bodies is no easy job, uh, especially 37 kilometers away. That was unheard of. Uh, but they were very smart and onto new technology. Oh! And can you guess how they were going to get their bodies outside the city? Train. In comes a funeral train. And it was a whole dedicated railway system. That was built a one, well, technically a one-way railway system with the train going back and forward to this cemetery, the funeral train. Um, Anyway. (laughs) I mean, I hope it's one way. You're not coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So in their dreams, in this duo's dreams, they envisioned... Uh, having a dedicated uh, coffin train that could carry 50 to 60 bodies at once to and from London. So like every day they could pack up a decent amount of people at least at least once a day. Um, and it sounded like a fantastic business plan because they had crunched the numbers uh, and this is what they thought they could accommodate on their piece of land. So they estimated that their land could accommodate a total of 5 million 830,000 individual graves in a single layer. So that is talking about that you dig six feet deep, you dig one body for the entire surface area. So that's just one layer. Okay. But, but if the practice of only burying like one person in each grave was abandoned and the laws were changed so that they could have up to 10 burials per grave, the site was capable of accommodating 28 million bodies. It's economics <laughs> at that point. <laughs> it, they're making, like, in on paper, they're making money. <laughs> and so just like the Titanic, you could pick your service into the death from three classes. <laughs> uh, would oh. you like to know the packages that were available? Oh, yeah. Sell us us (laughs) a dead package, please. Okay, okay. Welcome to... Okay, fantastic. Welcome to London Necrocomus. London Necropolis Company. We are very (laughs) excited to have your business. We can offer you one of three packages. The first is a first-class funeral. Now, this allows its buyer to select the grave site of your or your family's choice anywhere in the cemetery, as long as there's not a body already there. Uh, at the time of opening, so if you wanted to pay for this, it was just over two pounds and a few shillings. In today's money, it was only 240 pounds. So Affordable. Yeah. Very affordable. Absolutely 
very cheap, especially for the service you were getting. So you got a nice, basic, nine foot by four foot plot, very large, can accommodate the tallest of humans, um, and you did not have to have any any special coffin specifications. You didn't have to have one of those short and stout coffins that the paupers were using. You could you could bring your own. So that's that's lovely. Roomy. I want yeah, I want lots of leg yeah. room in my coffin. Exactly. <laughs> You've got feet of it, ma'am. Do not worry. Um, but it is expected that you, those of you, the family who are purchasing these first class graves, would need to erect a permanent mem- memorial at some point. Oh yeah, I want everyone to know that the angels are there for my body, so and not anybody else's. Yes. So there's gonna be a giant yeah. angel over my little first class. Yes, 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 exactly. Like ignore the poor people. I'm over here. Yes, that is yes. very much that is very much this package. And they didn't charge you extra to then bring your your monument. You had to buy it elsewhere. You had to buy your tombstone elsewhere, but you're allowed to bring it and put it on your grave. Which I is love nice. customizable is really the the vibe. Exactly. Exactly. Like you were doing them a service. They're doing you a service, really. Again, bargain. Bargain prices. Hmm. And all you have to do is chuck your loved one on a train and you get to follow them out via hmm. horse and cart. Um, I'm not sold yet. I want to hear the lower prices. Yet? Oh, that's okay, sir. <laughs> if first class is not for you, we offer a second class funeral at one pound or the equivalent to ninety-six dollars, ninety-six pounds in today's money. So again, literal bargain. Like you could not bury a body for a hundred bucks these days. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> It's a bargain. Uh, so in the second class, you were allowed some control over your burial location. Obviously, some areas were out of bounds for our first class customers, but you got some control. You did have the right to erect a permanent memorial, uh, but your family did need to pay an extra 10 shillings to secure this right. If a permanent memorial was not erected, then the Necropolis Company Necropolis. Necropolis. Yeah. So the London Necropolis Company reserved the right uh, to actually reuse your grave in the future. So this is kind of the package where if you don't like mark your territory, you might get moved and there reused. No in the squatters' future. rights. Absolutely no not. <laughs> exactly. You're getting exactly. unless you weigh your grave down with hard granite, you are getting <laughs> booted. Hmm. Exactly. So, if this is not to your liking, sir, I'm not sold yet. <laughs> we offer the best third-class funerals in all of England. Uh, <laughs> these are known as the pauper funerals, and it's often for people who are buried at a parish's expense or request. Um. And so there's a very large section in the cemetery that is designated for a certain parish for their pauper funerals. Very nice. Um, And so although uh, our cemetery is forbidden from using mass graves, uh, even the lowest class funeral is provided with some decent space for you to rest in the afterlife because you can be assured you will not be put in a mass pit of bodies, which is nice. 
Yeah, wow. thumbs up. I, I, I really thought they were just going to do away with coffins. Be like, nope, screw coffins. We're just dumping you in no. here. No, that was you, illegal? Have, you have some rights. Okay. Yeah, that was illegal. You have some rights. Yeah. However, for a third class funeral, you're not granted the right or your family's not granted the right to erect a permanent monument. And your burial site is subject to change because they might need to move you slash stack some people on top of you. So... Yeah. So despite despite all of this, this actual um like idea of a pauper's grave or like um you know the lower class burial was super more like super dignified compared to the majority of pauper's graves um and what they used to do. So it already is like a step above with respectfulness and like a nice decent memory, which is really nice. You know what's interesting is that today, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but it's also the same today that like you buy a plot of land um, in a cemetery, if that's where you want to be buried. Um, And I believe that it's 50 years after everyone in your family has died. Um, They do boot you because this is a recurring problem. This is still a problem. Yeah, yeah. You're only guaranteed X amount of years for your for your land right. For your eternal rest lasts only except for a <laughs> Rest <years>. well. <laughs> yeah. Have a good sleep. Bye-bye now. <laughs> yeah, get a good nap in because you're out in 50 years. <laughs> Sarah, I want to tell you, I want to tell you, Sarah, that that is my favorite thing I have learned on this show. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Yay! So that so is going. That you liked the spooky. When we, I'm calling dibs right now. Rabbit hole rewind for 2022. I'm taking this one for as my favorite. <laughs> okay. This whole episode, like guys, I really shit the bed, but you two just carried the fucking team. <laughs> this is a banging episode. This was a great episode. I love that I'm still thinking about the personality type and like the discussion Drew and I had off air, being like, "What? I wonder how they actually wait this." And we're like, "They don't. They don't wait they it. They don't <laughs> wait it. They just fucking ex- oh. pseudoscience." <laughs> For our listeners, just a gentle reminder that if you want to see pictures of all of the things that we talk about, um, you can uh, follow us at Go Ask Alice Podcast on Instagram, Go Ask Alice Pod on Twitter, and our Discord, which I'm just uploading a spoiler image to now, so you can get all cheeky bits and bobs. And you can chat to us about our favorite topics and we want to learn from you as well. So anyway, thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. Um, We always, we know why, but like we always want to know why. So like Sarah said, you know, come find us on social media, hang out. Um, We just launched a Patreon and there's going to be all kinds of wild shit in there. uh, Just like we already alluded to with our daddy Drew level. Um, If you don't know what that (laughs) is, you should listen to the episode where Drew talks all about his stripper routine. Uh, (laughs) and yeah thanks for coming with us on what i guess is the anniversary episode if not then the subtitle would be Lindsay's favorite episode we've ever done thank you so much (laughs) 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 (laughs)
I said, get fucked, Kyle. 